I want to hide my stuff. I, uh, you know, if you can figure out what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling, that's great, but it's not going to necessarily, I hope, be too obvious. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler, and you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story, a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author Brent Lewis, who has penned two nonfiction books, one fictional novel, a play, as well as a blog, numerous magazine articles, and a newspaper column. His work centers around the history and people of Ken Island, Maryland. Currently, he has a 10-minute play, which will be produced by the Prince Theater in Chestertown, Maryland. And so welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you here because I feel like there's so much uh, that I'd like to talk about, and hopefully I can get it all done in half an hour. But one of the things that kind of strikes me right off the bat is I feel that there's a little bit of simpatico between uh, you and I. When I was looking at especially your first book, I mean, you really captured the watermen, pirates and ghosts and you know all these kind of bizarre people and interesting stories from ken island and i was just wondering and so that's kind of a little bit of what i do only i'm a little more focused on the lower shore um but would you just tell me a little bit about how you come to find that as your sort of like dig in material sure for about 10 years i was with the ken island heritage society on the board and they had an oral history program that had kind of laid dormant for a while. And I got slotted into that without really much experience in interviewing or oral history or any of that. So whatever endeavor I go into, I try to do a little, as much research and homework as possible. So I started figuring out how to do these oral history interviews. And through the mandate of the Ken Island Heritage Society, Everything was connected to Ken Island. And over that 10-year period, I just built this wealth of interviews and conversations that I'd had with these people that kind of started telling a story on its own. And the History Press, who was my first publisher, reached out to heritage and historical societies in the Mid-Atlantic region, and that included Ken Island Heritage Society. There was a uh, longtime treasurer for that organization that got this letter. And do you know anyone who would want to publish a book, a history book? And she pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to pitch the book to History Press. So because of Miss Audrey Hawkins pushing me and pushing me, I finally went ahead and wrote a proposal. And then I got the news that they had accepted, History Press had accepted my proposal. And then I thought, oh, no, now I have to write a book. <laughs> and so that's and, – and then Ken Island is my – heritage both my parents were from that area my mom's side goes back 10 generations back to the mid 17th century uh recorded uh, dad's side of the family probably just as long but they were farmers and watermen so they didn't keep the kind of records that mom's side of the family did but i i just have such a personal connection to that to that area i think yeah, I think it's interesting that that's a little bit of a cart before the horse scenario. I mean, most writers, we, we write something and then we search for a publisher and search and search and, and sometimes finding no no real answer. But it sounds like 
you were like, oh, I have this publishing contract and now I have to write it. It's just interesting that that sort of happened a little bit backwards for you. It did. Um, I, it almost felt like an assignment. Like I, you know, I, I'd done magazine work and taken assignments in, in those regards. So it just felt like a bigger assignment for me to do. And it just, it opened up kind of everything, you know, all the opportunities that I've had since then. I had actually written a lot in my 20s and then had kind of given up a little bit. It was a different era in the early 90s, let's say. And self-publishing wasn't really an option. And and uh, I started a career as a real estate appraiser and, and real estate on the Eastern Shore was booming and I could easily work 80 hours a week if I wanted to. So I used all those excuses not to write. <laughs> and then joining the Heritage Society, getting into that oral history program, it just seemed to kind of all click for me at that point. Yeah, I think that's interesting that because actually it was one of the questions that I had was, you know, one of the when we have authors on this show, one of the questions that I am always interested in asking is like, when did you know you were a writer? Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, having understanding that that publishing contract came first, it just made me wonder if you were like never considered writing and then landed on it or if you had been sort of kind of seeing yourself in that way and then kind of building into that moment. You know, I think that a lot of us who write know it as kids to some regards. And I'm one of these lucky guys who my grandmother saved every comic book I ever drew at five years old and every uh, movie that I ripped off and wrote as a, my own story when I was 10 years old. Right. So mom's side of the family was very book oriented. If I had a problem or a question, she would hand me a book to answer that question. She was big on Aesop's fables and those kind of things. Um, Dad's side of the family were more the storytellers. Like he, his Waterman buddies would come in and they would drink beer and Carling's Black Label or Paps or, you know, whatever <laughs> the beer was in the 60s and just tell these hilarious stories. And sometimes they, they were stories that they had told dozens and dozens of times and they'd laugh every time as though they'd never heard them before. So between right. the book right, the books on mom's side and the storytelling on dad's side, I think from a very early age I was connected to the possibility of writing. Yeah, I think you touched on something that's really critical about the Delmarva Peninsula is that our sense of oral history. And that, you know, when you talk about the watermen sort of gathering around at the end of the day and kind of sitting around having a beer and telling these stories that then get passed down and, and how they affect us. I mean, that was sort of the same way in my family. Again, I'm more lower shore than, you know, my mom's family was in Accomack County, Virginia. I think our first... Um, you know, my first person in my on my mom's side of the family shows up in Accomack County in like 1638, you know, good old Griffith Savage, you know, showing up. And then from that point, you know, my family, they were watermen and farmers and, and all that sort of thing. So I sort of feel like, a, you know, I can understand that sense of the the importance of the oral history that gets passed down through the generations. And it certainly, I think, played a role in my writing. And it sounds like it's it's certainly was a foundation for you as well. Absolutely. And and you know from your experiences growing up in the area, uh, this place is full of characters. Uh, the, the people that I grew up around, both adults and children who are adults now, there's just, just wealth of character. They very independent people in general, and they're blunt and they're funny <laughs> and mean sometimes, you know, but... Uh, those are the people I grew up around. So that that speaks to me. 
And I think when you mention this sense of character, it's both, you know, when they say that person's such a character, but also as writers, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with characters. And I think some of the real people from this area, you know, when you when you start learning about some of the like there was the lady who in 1648 was trying to get voting rights for for women, you know, and I thought like I've never heard that story, but now I'm fascinated. And I think that these characters both in sort of that personality sense, but also as the the resource we draw on as writers is is a really interesting point. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, it's it's I think one of the other things that I that kind of kind of roots me down is that when you think about history in the sense of like even America, I mean, this part of the country is so old and it's just, I just feel like our, the stuff that we have to dig our hands in just goes so stinking deep. I mean, right into the marsh mud. Absolutely. We, uh, my daughter grew up out West in Idaho and Montana she's here now she's 31 and has a baby of her own now but uh, when she was a kid they moved idaho montana and we would go out to see her and my wife and i and we'd stay in the town b&b wherever we would go skiing or in the summer and and the host would always say things like this is the oldest building in ha- in town it's 65 years old. And I'm like, we have sheds on Ken Island that are 65, <laughs> that are older than that, you know? Yeah. And But on the other hand, in the time that I had kind of stopped writing, uh, my wife and I and daughter and a couple of friends went to Ireland. And then there they go, this is 2,500 years old. And exactly. That makes, it puts that into perspective. Exactly. And the fact that trip to Ireland was really my... I my return to writing the whole time we were over there I wrote every day just the trip stuff right and then when I came home I just made an effort to write every day I started pitching magazine stories and then the history press book happened so I had this long dormant maybe 10 years where I didn't write much at all but that trip to Ireland got the creative juices flowing and and I've been writing pretty regularly ever since and I think that brings up another interesting point, too, is that it's not just nonfiction for you. You've also done a fiction novel. You've now got a play out, um, a newspaper column. And I just think it's also one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is that there's so many different types and, and you're working within different genres at the sort of the seemingly the same time. Um, is that for me, that would be immensely difficult. I cannot even fathom trying to write a play. I would... I would rather probably give myself a root canal than try to <laughs> try to write a play. But you know, is what? How does that kind of move in you to to kind of switch and move around like that? I think part of it is that I still have a full time job. I'm a real estate appraiser, and this is my thirtieth year of doing that. I have a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I set my own appointments. I, as long as I meet my deadlines for reports and those kind of things, I can pretty much schedule my own day for the most part. But I have limited time to write. So when I'm writing, I have to be really passionate about what I'm writing. And I also need to think about the time it's going to take. So if I see that the like the novel was a real kind of slow time for me the the real estate business had kind of slumped the appraisal wasn't keeping me as busy as it had been so I thought okay this is a good time maybe to start this novel 
because I can see I'm going to have time this year to do that. But then it's hard to get excited about taking four or five years to write a novel because you're working full time. But like this past winter, I wrote a couple short stories. I wrote three 10 minute plays and I did some magazine work. And I, it keeps me writing. It keeps me focused. It, it doesn't allow rust to build on me too much. And I'm passionate about whatever project I'm doing. It's like I'm writing this magazine article. This is what I'm really into right now. But I also have this play in the back of my head that next weekend I'll write. Right. So that it's, it's more fun for me to do it. I, you know, I'll, I'll never probably be a great novelist or a great playwright because I think you really, you know, people need to really focus sometimes on what they want to do to become better and better at it. But I just would prefer to be a better writer than maybe a better novelist or a better. So whatever kind of grabs me is is what I want to write. Gotcha. There was a conversation that Tony and I had um, at one point about the fact of having a day job sort of makes you have better art. It makes you make better art because your time is limited. So when you have, you have to pick something that makes you, that inspires you, you have to pick something that you're going to be passionate about because you're going to have to carve out time to dedicate to it, you know, instead of, you know, thinking that I'm an artist and I'm just going to lay back and I'm going to have all day to do my art. While that seems very, seems sort of nice. It also, I think, maybe doesn't always result in the best best product. But it sounds like that's kind of something that you seem to stumble on, that having the day job means I got it. If I'm going to write, I've got to pick something that's really going to get my heart pumping about it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, writing a, a residential appraisal report isn't very creative. But I do have to define, I have to, I have to describe places and things i don't get to describe people in my reports but i do have to because there's a reader for that report who may be sitting in phoenix or chicago or new jersey so i have to describe what the area is like i have to go into a house and describe what that house is so even in that kind of monotonous report writing i can kind of find the creativity in it and then to have that time and also having someone who supports you in your endeavors who doesn't mind taking some time like my wife is really great about not worried when i'm on a big project going out for a while because you're working on a big project i remember one saint patrick's day we went out after i'd finished the remembering ken island and we hadn't been out for six months really other than maybe like valentine's day dinner and we went to one of the local pubs and about 20 minutes in, I had two or three different people say, boy, your wife is really having a good time. I was like, well, that's because she hasn't been out of the house in like six months. But you got to have somebody in your corner. Sure. You know, because it, it is one thing if you're working five days a week and now you're going to take the weekends and write. Exactly. So that, you know, you need to find those that, that support system too. Absolutely. And that's one of the things Tony and I have also talked about frequently is he and I've always said that we married really well because we both married women who, number one, are super supportive of us as writers and number two, are really good readers. Um, you know, his wife, Kelly, and my wife, Patty, you know, both of them are very perceptive. They're very good readers. They read all the time. And so I know that if I write something, I can hand it over to Patty and be like, tell me what you think. And Tony has said the same thing very often. Like he'll give something to to Kelly and say, 
how do you think? What do you think? And then he knows that if she, if she'll say, yeah, this was good. This wasn't good. You lost me here. Then he knows I, he can, both he and I can implicitly trust our wives' opinions to know we're either hitting the mark, not hitting the mark, or we're kind of close in some ways. So it's nice to have that, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Because writing is, we've often talked about on, on this podcast is it's a solitary endeavor. You know, it's not like you can write at the pub you know, three drinks in with, right. you know, the, you know, someone talking to you. I mean, it, it is a solitary endeavor. We have to be by ourselves, kind of sequestered in our brains, like, you know, kind of going at it. And it's nice that when you come up for air, that there's someone close by that's not going to berate you for disappearing for hours at a time. I also belong to a critique group that I've been with for eight, nine years at this point that we're all published writers, so we're all kind. We do different things, but we're all kind of on the same level. There, there's six or eight of us at this point, and and though there are differences in what we do, they are people who I trust to read. And so my first line of defense is my wife, and then I have the critique group, and then I have a group of B B readers that I can reach out to, uh, particularly in regards to specifics like you were talking about i want to i want waterman to read my waterman section to make sure that it's accurate even for the fiction stuff i i I don't want to miss anything or if i'm writing about farmers i want my farmer friends to read that section and so i i have different people that i go to for for different readers and that's important i think i wanted to kind of circle back to your second book because you kind of went in a historical but you kind of went a little bit into a niche market there with with the firefighters and i just wondered like was that another component where someone came to you and said hey we need to capture this history or you know did you just hear cool stories and then decide to put that together for a book or the president of the president chief both were friends of mine the Kent Island volunteer fire department were friends of mine they realized they had one charter member left all the rest had passed away and they knew I was doing the oral history interviews, so they asked me to interview him, and I did so, and it kind of clicked right away. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. And I asked my friends if if we had more stories, if there were more people I could talk to. And it was so funny because I was thinking about self-publishing that book. I had already published Remembering Ken Island, and I was struggling, and I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. And, and my wife said, well, did you ask History Press if they would be interested in it? I was like, never thought of that. And so I pitched it to History Press, and I, I had to kind of convince them a little bit because it was more niche. And I, don't, I think they had had some bad experiences with that kind of uh, volunteer fire departments or a small audience. So what I tried right. to do was write the book to showcase – not only that fire department, but volunteers in general. Like there's a, a strain that runs through volunteers. They're the camaraderie, the dedication, all those things. So I, even though it's about that particular volunteer fire department, I tried to write the book in a way to encompass volunteers in general. I don't know how successful I was at that. That's not necessarily for me to judge. Sure. And if I 
ever pitch another nonfiction book from them, I'll go in the opposite direction and and spread. I'll, I'll move off Ken Island. Sure. Uh, I think of my area kind of as the gateway to the eastern shore. When you come off that Bay Bridge, that next 20 miles or so is kind of my stomping grounds. Okay. And so I would leave Ken Island and, and spread that way uh, for the next time I take on a big nonfiction project, I think. Gotcha. Do you have anything that's kind of, that you're kind of cooking or, I mean, I know you've got the plays that are, and I want to talk about those for sure. Sure. Um, but do you have anything that you're, that's kind of percolating in there at all? I have a couple things. I, you know, the, the bloody point book, the, the novel is, I envisioned it as the middle of a trilogy kind of, but this was the one I had to get out of me. Sure. A lot of books written about my era are pre-Bay Bay Bridge, uh, when the Eastern Shore was Eden and, and those kind of things. That's not the era I grew up in. Sure. And I kind of always wanted to tell the story of, of my growing up on the Eastern Shore, the, the era that I grew up in, which was very different than the era that my parents or even my sister, who's only like nine years older than I am, grew up in. We had a big influx of people moving from the Western Shore. By the time I graduated from high school, maybe 40% of my graduating class weren't from the area. But my sister's class had pretty much been kids she'd gone to school with since kindergarten. So my era kind of is very different than before me. And that's why I wanted to write this book even though i i kind of see it as the middle of a of a longer generational story perhaps gotcha so you're kind of star wars in your kind of star wars <laughs> in it and then i have a i'd like to follow up with a nonfiction. i'm kind of working on a proposal for that but i'm also looking at time i have an opportunity maybe to work on a documentary that a friend is kind of pitched to me uh, we haven't gotten too far along in it but it seems like I write and then I have a little bit of time where I decide what is next what, what am I going to do next sure and that's kind of where I'm at at this period I, I have maybe four or five options that I would pursue depending on which was the most promising in the next six weeks, let's say, and and then move in that direction more. Yeah, just rub it in, Brent. Uh, I got I got the, options here. I got options I mean, there. The only, option, they, the, the only <laughs> options as far as what I'm going to sit in my room and write about. Those are really the only <laughs> options, whether anyone ever sees them or not. Uh, options as far as as what I will. Uh, take on you okay. know yeah okay. no definitely i mean i i would think that um i'll probably always if i publish fiction will have to self-publish uh i don't see me pursuing uh, publishers and agents at this point i i just don't see that happening so thankfully we have the opportunity to self-publish more Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge proponent of, of doing that, but doing it well. I think, sure, absolutely. I, think, I think there's a difference between, and I think that's one of the cool things about self-publishing, and I don't want to jump off on a tangent, but I think that self-publishing is something that is certainly growing and it's certainly, I think, changing sort of that stigma that's attached to it. Because I think that there are people who have good stories to tell who maybe are not going to get commercially picked up, sure. but the story still deserves to live and it deserves to be out there. And I sometimes feel like I'm the poster child for it, you know, but I think if you're going to do it, make sure to do it right and good covers and editing and 
get all the proper pieces to, together, which seems like you've done that for, for Bloody Point, too. I try to, uh, like I say, do my homework. I try to figure out what I'm doing before I do it. For Bloody Point, the year before Bloody Point, all I read was Elmore Leonard books, uh, Carl Hyacin books, thrillers. I think it's also important to write uh, read books from the era that you're writing in. So if you're writing about the 1970s, read books that were published in the 1970s, right. not just books about the 1970s. I also love pop culture, so I go through magazines, and you know, I love to know what the songs were, what the movies were, what was on television. There's nothing more fun than looking through a TV guide from 1976 <laughs> and seeing what was on Friday night at nine o'clock, so you know exactly what your character was watching. Like I love all that stuff and, and developing characters. I I keep big binders with slip cases and I tear out pictures of telephones and furniture and clothing that my characters might wear right. so that I can refer back to that during the writing process. That stuff is so much fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, and it goes back to, you know, getting it right, right, you know? And I mean, I do the same thing, you know, when I'm writing period uh, stories that are take place in a particular period, the first thing I do is I go to Google, I find out what music was, you know, if it's December 1969, I go and I pull up and, you know, and I make a playlist and I just listen to that stuff. And, you know, so I think that that helps, you know, it's it's all about like, we have to feel it yes. as writers in order to make it, make the reader feel Anyone it. Anyone else feel it. Exactly. I think music is a really important component. All my characters have a playlist. Now, I can't write anymore and listen to, like, pop music. I, it has to be without words. I don't want to hear lyrics while I'm trying sure, to write. Sure. But each of my characters have playlists. That's a lot of fun. I know what, you know, what kind of music they like, but it also puts me in the right frame of mind. Even writing nonfiction, I think music can really inform what you're writing oh i think so and I, th I think you have to as writers we have to use whatever tools are at our disposal and i feel like music and music and you know movies and tv shows i think those are all things that kind of help us get a sense of time place absolutely you know even you know and even tony will talk about taste and smell you know even those things because if you want to put your writer whether it's nonfiction or fiction our goal is to put our writer in a scene, to put them in a place. And the only way we can do that is to make them really feel it and see it and taste it and be a part of it. Absolutely. I think, you know, as writers, we know, we should know or have some idea of what our strong suits and, and weaknesses are. Like, I think that's important to, to know what your weaknesses are. Oh, absolutely. Like, I know that, you know, plotting may not be my strong suit, but um, character and dialogue like I, because I've done, you know, 200 hours of oral history interviews with Ken Islanders in their 80s, I don't have to wonder what they would sound like or what they would say. Right. Because I either can intuit that or I have it on tape. I can go back to a tape and pop a tape in or old tapes or digital, of course, and, sure. and write exactly how they would say that. So, you know, I think all that informs what I, what my strengths might be and that allows me to focus on my weaknesses more <laughs> yeah exactly no i think you know? you're right i think you're right absolutely like i was just sitting there thinking like mine would be the opposite like for me dialogue is so intimidating and dialogue is something that i struggle with but i feel like i can uh, i feel like one of my strong points would be uh you know being able to put someone in a place that they know ex mm. that they can close their eyes and see that place and know exactly where they are so you know, I think that goes back to 
I think it's really important for us to know our strengths and our weaknesses and, and to always be kind of pegging away at our at our weaknesses. Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's the job really is well, yeah, to figure yeah. out how to make it better. And, and that's why I like working with editors and, you know, I'm not real precious about my stuff. I want I, that input, even if I ignore the input, I want it to have that opportunity to process it. Because even if it stings a little bit, sometimes the next day you go, oh, they were right. That, yeah. That, that, that's absolutely right. I need to fix that. Yeah. And I think it's this really interesting thing about being a writer. I've always kind of felt like we need to develop a thick skin, but be able to show a soft underbelly. Sure. You know, and I, and I think that that's such a, an, a dynamic that we've got to develop because, you know, the criticism is going to come and you have to be able to accept it. And yep. you have to be able to say, like you said, yeah, I didn't get it right. Because if the reader doesn't get it, then we didn't do a good job of conveying. Absolutely. Because, you know, not every reader can... Um, not every reader can it's our job to make them understand so uh, someone who hasn't grown up on the easter shore who doesn't know the life of a waterman if uh, my job is to make them understand those people and the choices they make as opposed to uh, the reader saying oh they wouldn't do that right because maybe just because the reader may not think that that person would do that i know they would but my job is to make that reader believe that they would as well and exactly you're talking about the dichotomies i mean we have so many dichotomies as a writer for one thing you sit in a room all by yourself for hours at a time you become antisocial almost and then you have to go out and sell your book and meet people and shake hands and it's so weird sometimes to flip that switch on and off it's it's really all very confusing sometimes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds like you're getting ready to do almost a little bit of the same with this play i mean you're getting ready to come up with an audience and i before we run out of time sure. i want to make sure that i that i touch on that play so you're going to be writing something solitary and then delivering it to an audience uh, watching it watching actors play it out which right. is really exciting uh the the play is the this is the 14th annual short attention span theater um produced by the garfield center for the arts in chestertown at the prince theater so there are eight 10-minute plays and my play all over but the shouting is one of these uh, eight plays that have been chosen to be produced awesome uh, it's the last two weekends in june and the first weekend in july friday and saturday night and then sunday matinees so it's pretty exciting that sounds amazing so do, do people get tickets online or yes, can they, they can just show up at the hotel at the theater or? they are available in advance at the garfield center website uh, they also obviously the box open box office will be open on the um the days and nights of the uh, productions and uh you know that the 10 minute thing is another challenge in a way how do you tell a story in 10 minutes and there are a lot of differences in, say, writing a novel and a 10-minute play. But at the same time, there are consistencies. There has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. There has to be conflict. The only thing is, in a 10-minute play, you have to get to it really quick. Right. Like, people need to know in that first page, certainly by the second page, what this is about. So there's no room for, you know, taking your time getting to the point, which sure, I'm really sure. good at taking my time getting <laughs> to the point sometimes. Right, right. But with a 10-minute play, you have to think, you really strip it down to its essentials. What is this about? 
what am I trying to say? And I'm never really trying to say anything. Like I know some writers feel like they want to impart some knowledge or uh, share some deep. I don't really want to do that. I, I don't want to solve the problem. I just want to present the problem. Tell the story. Tell the story. And, and that's about people. That's about you know, things that happen as opposed to me trying to teach someone a lesson. Or if there's a lesson, I'd rather have it be much hidden in there as opposed to be real blatant. I tend to be uh, more, uh, you know, almost subversive than sure. antagonistic. Right, like, right. I, I want to hide my stuff. I, uh, you know, if you can figure out what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling, that's great. But it's not going to necessarily, I hope, be too obvious. Brent, I want to thank you so much for coming down and, and being on the podcast. This has been awesome. Real pleasure. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.